Today on episode number 223 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Karen Cangelosi gives us a peek behind the curtain in her STEM classes and argues against the notion that you can't do that in a STEM course. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Hello and welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I was completely enthralled with an article that Karen Cangelosi wrote for Hybrid Pedagogy. It's entitled, But You Can't Do That in a STEM Course. And please don't stop listening even if you don't teach STEM courses because Karen's advice for us today goes well beyond those disciplines and can apply to any of us who teach. Karen Cangelosi is a professor of biology at Keene State College. Her courses include animal behavior, evolution and human behavior, tropical marine biology, invertebrate zoology and ecology and evolution. She runs a coral reef monitoring program in the Turks and Caicos Islands and a research program on the behavioral ecology of spiders in Keene, New Hampshire. Karen spearheaded a movement to replace traditional textbooks with open educational resources and other freely available resources for almost all Keene State College biology courses and has incorporated methods of open pedagogy in all of her classes since 2016. She serves as the Keene State College Open Education Faculty Fellow, where she facilitates an open pedagogy faculty learning community and is co-leader of KSC Open, a domain of one's own campus project. She was recently appointed as the Keene State College Coordinator of Faculty Enrichment. Karen, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Hi, Bonnie. It's really great to be here. I'm so glad to get to talk with you today for the podcast. And one of the things that was so fun about all the things that you sent over for me to explore about your work is that I felt like I was really getting a peek behind the curtain. And I just love the opportunities I get to do that. And one of the very unique things too, is not just a peek behind your curtain as a professor, but a peek behind some of your students' experiences as they're coming into your classes. Would you help us peek a little bit behind the curtain and before your classes even start? In a semester, tell us what are some of the surprises that your students experience? Yeah, that's a that's such a great question. And I, and I wish my students were here to speak for themselves because yeah. I am all about like trying to promote student voices. And we do a lot of wonderful things with student panels. And so I'll try to paraphrase my students a little bit. You know, now that I've been using open pedagogy and these kinds of techniques in my classes a little bit more, it may be a little bit less surprising to some of my students, but I would say a few semesters ago, it was definitely a lot more like, what the hell are we doing? (laughs) And one of my students who wrote a blog post about this that you, you may be familiar with, Miranda Dean says that she thought she actually enrolled in the wrong class when she got <laughs> onto my class. So 
actually like went into the site and, you know, I use a little bit of Canvas as a, I kind of do a hybrid between Canvas and my own kind of web spaces and I'm like less and less in the learning management system all the time. So she went into there and said, I was sure I enrolled in the wrong course and I don't know what she wants me to do or why I need to be doing this. And this just seems like crazy which I think is great. I mean, I love when my students are surprised at what I'm asking them to do or that they feel sort of shocked or this is different or this is new. And actually, one of my worries now is that, oh, yeah, this is this is Cangelosi doing this thing again instead of it feeling new. One of the big surprises she writes about, and for you, I realize you are so immersed in open education that this is not news to you. And, and it might be less news to your students, but Talk about the textbook. What would a textbook normally cost for your class? And then what did she experience? Sure. Well, maybe for her, but also for our students in our introductory courses, we use only open educational resources in our intro course. We use the OpenStax biology. So I think our students in those courses are definitely pleasantly surprised when we say no textbook costs, you know, that it's going to cost you zero. And some of them are definitely surprised by that or they're like, what am I going to do without having a physical book that I have to read? Uh, but the fact that they're saving two, $300 because science textbooks are quite expensive. And so on average, they save about $250 a piece and they're, they're pretty happy about that. Some of them are surprised to have to read stuff online instead of having a physical book. And they're like, can we print it? And I'm like, well, you can, but you might not really want to. So... Yeah, so that that part of it, I think, is definitely surprising for students. I know that at your institution, this is becoming more of the norm. Mm. But for a lot of people listening, it's not. So somebody is listening, and they do teach an introductory class, whether that be in biology or a different discipline. Mm -hmm. How difficult is that? How difficult it is to find an open educational resource that one could adopt and then what do you give up? I mean, is there really such a thing as free? <laughs> what's, yeah. the, what's the what's the hidden cost that we can't put our arms around? What what is it like to do that? How easy? How hard? Yeah, well, it's a it's a good question, and I would say it's not really the norm at my institution as a whole, but it's definitely become the norm in the biology department. And so we use a, a range of open educational resources, but a lot of just free content that's on the web. So we try to say we do zero textbook costs for most of our classes up to the first two years in the biology program. And most of our upper level classes after that have no traditional textbook costs associated with them. It's actually not that hard in the sciences. Like when you think about all the free content that's available on the web, I use material from like the Berkeley 101 course for evolution. There's the uh, Utah Genetic Science Learning Center. The Smithsonian has a ton of content. So these are not openly licensed materials, but they're free and they're easily available on the web. And so uh, students can definitely find content. You can find content for them. And it's really not difficult to find a lot of, especially fairly introductory content in the sciences for biology, chemistry, and physics. And for a lot of these open educational resource providers, like you mentioned, OpenStax, just for people listening, because this is still very new for me, a lot of times your campus bookstore can actually offer one of these titles where they print it out and it could be available in a print form for students. Just I'm just 
again, mentioning that there are other ways that universities have that where if the students really feel like they need a printed copy, or sometimes the professors feel like the printed copy is necessary. But I'm curious before we go on and talk about other aspects, because I certainly don't mean to at all limit your course design or open education to just this tiny sliver of it. But, but I, I try to think with beginner's mind for, I'd love to see more professors realize how easy this is. What do you yeah. think it is? Is there, do they really need to print a textbook or is that kind of a learning curve that you as a professor can help them with of using digital resources? Mm-hmm. So that's a, that's the thing. I don't think that anybody really needs to have a printed resource. And so that is notwithstanding people that may have certain kinds of visual disabilities where it's difficult to read on a screen and not as familiar with that as maybe some people are. So for for the majority of students, if it's just a nervousness around, oh, I don't want to have to read on a screen or it's harder to read on a screen than a printed textbook, I don't think they're really aren't any valid studies that show that students learn better by reading from a printed book. Or people just say, I like to hold the book in my hand. And often what I'll say to professors when I've done workshops and things is to say, well, you can weigh that against, you know, I just like to have a book in my hand. Well, you can weigh that against students in your classes that maybe are food insecure, you know, (laughs) and they're not getting enough to eat and they're really having trouble because their expenses are so high. And so you're saying, well, I just like to have a book or I think my student should have a book in, in my hand, in their hand, when perhaps there are other things that are more important for the, for that student. And so my students do quite well. When I had, we had 93 students in our introductory biology class and I, I actually, uh, dodge the bookstore at every turn, even though they're like, what book are you using? Even if it's OER, tell us about it. Because they do want to print it and they want to sell it to the students. And I knew if I told them what it was, they would print it and they would put it in the bookstore and they would market it to my students. And I told my students, I told the bookstore, we don't have any book at all. There's just no book. There's just no book. And so then the students, only one of the 93 chose to actually go on OpenStax and have the book printed for herself, which you can do. The other thing I I have the sense of is that people not really understanding that it isn't just words written on a page or in this case on a screen. I I think I've actually looked at the OpenStax biology specifically because there's interactive diagrams and quiz, like little tiny learning quizzes, not for um, punitive purposes, but for retention purposes and check for understanding. I mean, and I think once students are able to experience what a engaging open textbook can be. I mean, then, then it's like, well, I wouldn't want to print this because I couldn't take those quizzes and see what the answer was right away. And it's a, it's a great book. I've, I've taught biology for 26 years. I've had, I have shelves full of introductory biology textbooks. The open sex biology textbook is just as good, if not better than any other biology textbook I've ever used with my students and being able to have those interactive kinds of quizzes and links to videos right there definitely makes it even just easier and all in one place. So it's really nice. So we've looked at before your class starts already, your students are experiencing surprise. What? What's this open textbook? Although maybe not as much these days, but you know, early on as you started to do that and then opening up the space a little bit, not everything's locked behind this learning management system, but there's a whole world out there. Talk to me about the first day of class or maybe the first couple of sessions. What element of surprise or what element of trying to get me enveloped in a new way of thinking about this particular Mm -hmm. discipline? 
Sure. And I, and I should say there's a difference between the, for my upper level courses, like my marine biology class, my invertebrate zoology class, my animal behavior class, I don't use a, I don't use a book at all. We don't use open sex. We don't use any kind of textbook. So the, the open sex is for the intro books. Mm-hmm. So for my upper level classes, I think the students are more surprised when I go in on the first day and say, okay, we're going to construct this class together. You know, I don't have a syllabus. I don't have a list of topics. I have some ideas. I have questions I want you to explore. And and I say, how do you guys want to approach this class? And so they're like, what? Like, what are the learning outcomes that you would like to see? And they're mostly scratching their head. Like, I don't know how to write a learning outcome. And then I'll say, well, how many of you guys actually pay attention to that laundry list of learning outcomes that you see on your syllabi and are at the end of the semester saying, but we never did number seven. You know, they're mostly like, I don't pay that much attention to that. So they're surprised that they're helping to construct the class. And especially, I think the biggest surprise that they have and the thing that they're not really sure what they're going to do with is I say, I want you guys to tell me how you want to be graded. I have my students write their own grading proposal. Like, what kinds of assignments do you want to do? How much of them do you want to do? How much do you want to do this versus that? And that they're going to grade themselves and that they do a lot of self-assessment in my classes. So I think a lot of it is sort of shocking to them all at the same time all because they're getting all of this at once. So I, I do put a lot of that material out on my course sites for students to peruse at least for a weekend or more ahead before the class starts mm. so they can kind of start to look at it. And some do and some don't. Um, so they're sort of like, what the heck is this? <laughs> why, why is she making me do this? And most of them really do come around after a while to, to see that there are so many advantages to this style of learning and they really like it. But not, not everyone, right? I had one student in my invertebrate zoology class who was trying to do some of the things I asked him to do. And he was just having a difficult time and he was struggling. He didn't know what to do. And I I knew he was a good student. I knew that he was capable of of learning, but he just, he's like, I need to take tests. I want to do this traditionally. And so I said, okay, you want tests? I got 26 years worth of tests on my computer. I've got practical exams. I have traditional essay exams. I've got multiple choice, but like you can take all the tests that you want and that and that's what he chose to do and when I say student agency and that's what you want to do then then that's what we did for him so that actually was in part answering my next question which is are they doing this collaboratively and the class is coming up with a structure that then they they work together on or is it each and every student contracting with you this agreement around how their learning will take place um, so there's a, a little bit of both that goes on because in the in the first class or two, we have a lot of discussion about what's possible. And so they get ideas from each other. But I have each student sort of craft their own individual grading proposal, which includes an attendance policy for themselves. I'm like, write your own attendance policy and put that onto your grading proposal and tell me how much, uh, what percentage of your grade you would like to go to these different kinds of activities So each individual student will submit their own grading proposal, but they kind of get ideas from each other in sort of talking about, well, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? How are you going to do? How how did you do this before? You know, so that there, so there's some collaborative aspect to to trying to figure it out. And how many students are we talking about here for, for this kind of structure? So my upper level classes have a maximum of 16. Mm Mm-hmm. So, which is a nice size. So I tend to have, you know, somewhere, you know, 13 to 16 
in those in those courses. And then because I can't resist. <laughs> so walk me along then the pathway of we're about three quarters of the way through a term. Is, is it a semester that you're teaching or? Yeah, we have semesters. Okay. And then how, you know, how are, how are we checking in? Are they, do you, are you putting anything down in a spreadsheet somewhere or in the learning management system for how grades are, <laughs> you know, acquired or is it all on them? Yeah. So, and I realized that this comes from the place of a privileged full ten, you know, full professor who's tenured. Right. So I'm like, I'm just done with a lot of that crap. Like I'm done with spreadsheets and, keeping points. And believe me, I used to be really good at that. Like you have a maximum of 600 points and, you know, <laughs> you know, 120 of those points are going to be for this and 90 are going to be for that. And then, you know, periodically I'll tell you exactly what the percentages in your grade. So I, I like, I'm just like done with that. So I don't do that anymore. And so maybe some people think I went way far the other side. So my students do self-assessments and they do a total of four. They, so there's three self-assessments during the semester, and then they do a final self-assessment at the very end. And so so they fill out a self-assessment form, and I ask them a lot of questions like, how do you feel like this is going? What do you think you contributed? How would you describe your, you know, what success you've had here? And so they have to answer the question, and then I say, what grade would you give yourself for this? So it's interesting I love the whole process of self-assessment and we could probably spend the rest of the show just talking about that, right? Yeah. But one of the things that became clear to me is that a student would say something like, oh, I haven't done this at all for one of the questions. And then they give themselves a C. And I'm like, huh, explain to me how that's average. Like, if you haven't done this at all, why wouldn't it be an F for that category? And so they go, huh, yeah, I guess maybe you're right. And so... By, by kind of taking that fear away a little bit to say, don't be afraid to give yourself an F or something if you didn't do it and, and ask yourself, why? Is it because you want to do something else? Is, be, is it because you didn't think this was valuable? That F is not going to stick with you. Like you could end up on your self-assessment having lots of C's and D's and F's. And then by the end of the semester, you still might have an A in this class. You're not doomed. You haven't just earned 17 points that will be calculated into an average that will never go away. Like those grades can completely change and you just have to convince yourself, you know, and as you're convincing yourself, it will convince me that, yeah, now that's what you've been able to accomplish. And I I just think it's a really powerful thing for learning. There's so much that you're talking about here. One that I want to acknowledge again, you and I both are in relative positions of privilege in terms of being tenured faculty. And at my institution, I'm able to experiment with a lot of stuff and never get any kind of pushback because of the credibility that I'm able to bring through the podcast and other reasons like no, no one comes and says, what's this you're experimenting with? But you know, those people listening who are in your first couple of years, and maybe on tenure track, but not there yet, you, you might not want to swing, you know, this far. I did also want to acknowledge too that you're you're really drawing on a thread that has come up a number of times in the podcast and just challenges me in such good healthy ways. Mm-hmm. We constantly need to be reflecting on our teaching philosophy mm-hmm. and Definitely. every single thing that we do and Absolutely. how it aligns back with that because you know, I, I can't, I, I've tried, and I'm sure I still will sometimes on accident, but, but to go, oh, that sounds great. Let me try that. But it's completely misaligned 
with other aspects. We got to kind of kind of bring it all down to the baseline and build it back up again if we're going to really be thinking about what we believe as teachers. Absolutely. And I think that those of us that are in positions of privilege actually have the responsibility to take those kinds of risks and do different things. And so if you're if you're not brand new or an adjunct and you're fearing for your position, then it's like, how else is anything ever going to change if we don't really shake up all of these structures? And we talk about how there's so much in education, higher education, and probably education in general that needs to shift. So what or who is going to actually make those shifts happen if it isn't those of us that sit in these positions where we don't really have to fear anything in terms of those kinds of ramifications in your tenure process, mm-hmm. right? Like having somebody make fun of you, you know, or having a student think that you're completely crazy or having your colleagues think that you're off the wall. Those are not really risks, not like some people face. And so, you know, I would say that we have such an opportunity to use our classrooms as experimental places where we can really affect change. And I don't mean that our students are going to be these guinea pigs and they're going to suffer <laughs> immensely. Like we have to be very conscious about the safeguards that we build in for our students so that they do have the out to say, hey, if you want to take traditional tests, you can take them or, or whatever. It's so that they feel like they're they're learning. So. I do have a a whole nother area I want to explore with you. But before I do, I just one of the big objections that comes up with the kind of work that that you're describing Mm -hmm. is that it's makes it too easy. That's too easy. You know, there's, you know, people won't (laughs) fail. Yeah, people won't fail the class or they won't, you know, that won't create the kind of rigor rigor is often used in those objections. Would you respond to those concerns? Sure. Yeah, I think I think it's really interesting. I mean, some, some of it kind of assumes that our students are so lazy and uninterested in learning that they're going to do the least amount of work so that they can just get an A. And that's just not been my experience at all. You know, I have students that are, you know, working two jobs and just trying to hold it together, and they're still putting as much effort into their classes as they can possibly put because they earnestly want to do as well as they can to get as much out of the experience as they can. So I feel that the rigor comes from the students themselves, that the more you're giving power and and energy over to them to say, what do you want? What do you want to learn? What can you get out of this? The more and more they actually put into it and the the kinds of work that they're doing and the, the, the blog posts that they're writing for my class and the research that they're doing and the connections that they're making and the hyperlinking that they're constructing, is incredibly rich with different kinds of ideas. And I I don't think anybody could look at a lot of the work that they're producing and say, that's not rigorous. And and that's not to say that maybe their grammar isn't always perfect, or maybe they didn't quite get this reference right. So they they may still be struggling, but that's, that's part of the learning process that's there. So I haven't seen students that are just trying to slide through for an easy A. And because they have to actually justify their A to me, it, do, it doesn't happen. Say, so, okay, well, when I keep saying, well, explain to me how that's an A, that all they have to do is sort of justify it. And, and they can decide, well, I decided to write these posts on this topic instead of that one. Or I wanted to do a, a project about this. Or I, I, I drew this thing. I had a student who designed these beautiful comics in animal behavior 
and that that was her choice of what she wanted to do. And I'm like, it illustrated these ideas. That, that's great. So just just tell me about what you learned from this and why you think you should get an A. So mm-hmm. I think it's incredibly rigorous work. Yeah, I, and I think that's sometimes not the part that we hear. And and I love the way you're helping us peel, you know, peel back the onion. No peek behind the curtain is what I was going for. It's just, it's so fun to just, uh, to be able to just sort of picture what it would be like to have you as a teacher. And before we go on to the recommendation segment, I just wanted to explore one more area with mm-hmm. you. As I read your bio and just, I, I, as I've told you, I admired your work for a long time. I, I didn't have science teachers like you who could help me see (laughs) how learning about this discipline can make us make the world better. Talk about Mm -hmm. your teaching as an act of social justice and how you help students be able to see those connections. Sure. Well, I think in in many ways, I feel like the sciences is so naturally situated to have us address issues that are of social concern, especially when you think about environmental issues. We talk about global warming and marine biology. There's so much about ocean conservation. So there's there's so much that is naturally there. When I teach invertebrate zoology, we talk about diseases like malaria. You know, why are there certain groups of people in the world that suffer from these diseases more than others? So I think a lot of that content is already naturally situated to to deal with social justice. But the extent to which an instructor decides to emphasize that in their class can be very different too. You know, you can say, learn the life cycle of the plasmodium organism and memorize that. Or you can say, huh, why are these people actually getting malaria? You know, like those those questions could be answered by a biologist too, not just the memorize the life cycle part. And, And I think for me, like I've been an activist for as long as I can remember. And a lot of my sort of social justice activism in like lesbian and gay rights, in the environmental movement, in the feminist movement, I always felt a little bit sort of schizophrenic around that. Like that was that was the stuff that I did over here. And then I would go to school and be this, I'm now I'm the biology professor and I'm in the classroom and we're just talking about like memorizing terms and doing life cycle stuff. And so it was sort of divided. And, and I think that later in my life, I'm like, huh, I should be integrating these things better. And for me, open education really allows for that even to a greater extent, you know, to say, how is, how do we look at our students as a group of people that are an oppressed population in some ways, right? They're the underprivileged in this context. And so if we look at what is it that we need, how do we need to empower them? How how do we bring those principles of social justice uh, into our classrooms in ways that can help us be better teachers and can really improve the lives of our students, not just while they're in my class, but what, what's going to happen to them after they graduate, because I think about them as whole people. Uh, maybe it was Robin DeRosa or some other brilliant person that said something like, the students already have real lives. You know, we talk about when you get out into real <laughs> life, well, no, they're actually <laughs> do have a real life right now. Yeah. And so, when we think about it that way, we definitely are just better professors and our our students are learning more. So it's absolutely not just a thing that you can do, but absolutely essential for being a good professor is to have a social justice context to whatever, whatever you're teaching. 
Well, I'm so grateful for the work that you do. And I just wish I could go back and have you as a professor. Because you. Our, our, our son is six. He's in his in first grade. And I just am barely able to hang on to, you know, the, the things that he's already learning about space. He's really interested in space. And he is interested in all yeah. kinds of science. And I am fortunate that I do like technology. So the robot stuff, I can kind of understand programming and Boolean logic, you know, just enough to to be somewhat helpful. But it's just so fun to think about all the possibilities, but especially integrating what our students really care about and what they're passionate about. And that's just been such a theme that's been coming up, especially as of late on the podcast where it's like, I don't know, stop and ask them what their goals are for learning how to write better. Like stop trying to shove down, you know, APA down their throats. Well, fuck it. Right? Like, like, what a novel idea. This is such an idea. Like, oh, you never want to ever go on beyond college and you never, like you never want to write any journal articles that maybe I would be better served as your coach to help you actually pursue those writing goals you might actually have. It's yeah. Imagine it that. It's crazy what we consider like these revolutionary ideas that are actually <laughs> not that, you know, amazingly different than what people have been saying for a long time. We're just deciding, okay, instead of moving at the usual glacial speed that academia moves at, we can actually say, let's, let's really try to enact these methods and these principles that will get us in a very different place than where we are right now. Karen, this is the point in the show where we each get to give our recommendations. And I have one that is the most ridiculous one I've given in a while. So it's a it's a quick story. This is not my actual recommendation. But my, I found out that my husband and I both had coveted this robot vacuum called the Roomba, which people may have heard of before. And Roombas are something like 600 to $800. And that was just like, that would be nice. But that's We'd rather buy the forthcoming rumored Apple Watch, you know, rather than spend that much on on that kind of a luxury. <laughs> and it was something like 6 a.m. and I'm sitting there flipping through on my iPad um, a couple weeks ago. And they have a review from, I was, I think, the wire cutter for the best one of these that's under $300. And it was on sale for $170. Mm-hmm. And it's the, I think it's, Ufy, E-U-F-Y, Boost IQ Ro- RoboVac 115, which I will be linking to in the show notes. And it was one of those things where we, you know, I, I do try to think a lot about frictionless systems and neither my husband and I is ever inclined to pick up a vacuum cleaner. We do outsource and have a team that comes in once a month that, you know, gets us by. But this is just kind of one of those fun things. I had no idea, A, how dirty our floors are. <laughs> they, it just doesn't show. They look lovely. If you came over, you would never know it. But I mean, this thing is picking up every time it goes. A full, full vacuum. (laughs) And uh, dirt and dust you didn't know existed. Oh my gosh. I hate to see that thing in my house. (laughs) And then how easy it is. It comes with a little remote and you just can send it on its way. You can have a little barrier so it won't get caught up in electrical cords if you have issues like that. But I mean, it's the smartest thing. But my my kids are just enamored with it and so oh, you can actually awesome. drive it around with the remote so my son is like driving <laughs> the, the house. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the 
they both right. like, let me push the button. Let me push the button. Okay, we can only push the button if we take everything off the floor that's on it. I mean, it's, and they run around with like more motivation than they've ever had in their lives for any, any sort of household chore. It's been a delight. So that is my ridiculous so recommendation. I will say that I only recommend things that completely delight me. And this is one where I just thought it just keeps paying off in spades. We've had it for about like I said, two weeks now, and it is a welcome member of our home now. <laughs> Karen, wow. what do you have to recommend oh today? My gosh, now now my recommendation is <laughs> going to seem really boring in in uh, res- comparison to that. So, well, I uh, had a couple of things to recommend. One is a book that is called A Mind for Numbers which is written by Barbara Oakley. The subtitle is How to Excel at Math and Science Even If You Flunked Algebra. And I don't know if you've heard of it before. No. Yeah, it's pretty pretty cool. I I love this book because it's about creativity. It's not about like, oh, this book's going to teach me how to do math. It's really about how our minds go into different modes. And she talks a lot about like a, a focused mode of thinking versus a diffuse mode. And she talked about how really creative people like artists, but also like Thomas Edison would invent things by getting his mind to go into this diffuse mode mm. and sort of like how much work we do when we're not concentrating on something. Like when you're really focused on, I can't solve this equation, but if you take a walk or, you know, take a break or fall partly asleep, that your mind is actually doing all this work in the background. Mm. And it's really, really amazing. Then you come back from that break and you're like, aha, now I have the answer. And so there's ways that we can actually intentionally bring our minds into diffuse states to be more creative and more problem solving. And so I've I've often said that I'll, you know, I'll write uh, something like that article. I think I wrote it in my head for about five months until I put it down on paper. And I was really glad to hear Jesse Stommel. I took his writing workshop this summer and he talked about how he, you know, writes stuff in his head. And then finally it just all comes down. And I'm like, that's what I do. <laughs> so, Oh, wonderful. Brilliantly than me, but yeah. <laughs> the other recommendation is the Spoken Hub blog by Allison Indranis. I think I'm saying her name correctly. And she is a person who does faculty development stuff. And so I have this new gig as our coordinator of faculty enrichment, which is kind of what we call faculty development here at Keene State. And she wrote a post on July 13th this year, 2018, called Reflecting on Some Things, a memoir. And I I love this post for so many reasons. She's so creative. But I love how she kind of takes these recommendations that, that were written for somebody for filmmakers. And they're great recommendations. Like, there's nothing wrong with spending a night in jail if it means getting the shot you need. You know, like, you know, so learn to live with your mistakes. Like, these kinds of these kinds of things like that are about shaking it all up. Like just don't do things the way that people have always done them before. Don't be afraid to take rests. Don't just feel like you have to do what everybody else does. And I love the piece about not wallowing in your despair, you know, just like keep your despair private and brief. I really kind of like that too, because <laughs> if you're going out there and you're doing crazy stuff, you're going to screw up and it's, it's okay to make mistakes. And then you have to kind of, uh, get me on it. So there's other really great things in her post and I'll, I'll let, you know, people read them for her, for themselves. But both of these recommendations are resonating with me so much. It's the first time I have ever, I'm sure it exists because everything always exists when I think it doesn't, but just this connection between being better at math 
And then yeah. what you're talking about, I think of in my head, I can't reconcile them going together, but yet I see they do that they totally <laughs> do. But in my head, they don't, you know what I mean? Like I clearly yeah. this would be something that would benefit me to read because they it both, they both do and don't go together all at once. <laughs> it's hard to explain. Yeah. Yeah. And whenever I hear people say, I can't do math or, you know, I can't do science, you know, I'm always like, well, there is, there is no, you know, you can't do, right? Yeah. There's no genetic predetermined thing where people suddenly know how to do math. Everybody had to yeah. learn math. Even Einstein had to learn yeah. math. That just being able to access the creative parts of your brain allow you to do it. And, and the good news is that anybody can do that. Anybody can do that. I always suggest that we shift our language to say, I am working on getting better at yeah, you know, whatever yeah. that is, it's just a big shift. And then the memoir, or the posts that you were talking about reflecting on some things. That yeah. sounds amazing. And and I, really I'm great. not new in faculty development, but I took my role got expanded at my institution. So I'm feeling very mm. new <laughs> at yeah. a lot of things. And I think I need to go read the post as soon as we get off the line, because that just sounds like it would be a really healthy time for me to read it and reflect on it, maybe do some writing of my own to to kind of challenge myself to be thinking about some of these things that she's recommended. It sounds amazing. So thank you so much for both of these and for all your contributions today. Thank you. I really appreciated having the opportunity to be on your podcast. It's such an honor. It was so invigorating to get to have this conversation with Karen Cangelosi. Thank you, Karen, for coming on Teaching in Higher Ed. And secret surprise, she's already agreed to come back because there's so much more I wanted to ask her and so much more she can offer to our community. Thanks to all of you for listening. If you've been listening for a while and want to contribute in some way, you can share the show with your colleagues. It's one of the best ways of spreading the word about the podcast. And consider showing them how easy it is to listen to podcasts. A lot of them are not aware that they probably already have an app on their phone that allows them to do that, or it's just one tap away. So thanks for spreading the word about teaching in higher ed and for spreading the word about podcast as a means for lifelong learning. Thanks so much to you for listening and I'll see you next time.